good, 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 good. Um, as always, my name is Derek, and this portion of the service is the sermon. Are you ready? Okay. Exodus chapter 3. If you have a Bible, Exodus 3, page numbers on the screen. If you picked up a house Bible uh, at the door, and this is where we'll be uh, a majority of the time, and then we're going to close with this fantastic passage from uh, the New Testament. And so, uh, again, good to see you. In the Bible, and if you were here last week, I, I said this in a number of ways, but, and I'll repeat it a little bit each week here in the series, but in the Bible, you'll find hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of names for God. It's not just the one God, but there are all these different names that are given to him and about him and for him and so on. And the two main categories that the names fall into are, on one side, names were given to God based on things that he had done. So if God rescued his people, if he provided for their needs, if he supplied their needs, if he saved them, if he whatever... He has these names that are given to him based on like some of his things that he has done for people. Uh, so you have that whole category. And therefore you have names like the God who saves, which is Yeshua, which is one of our names in this series. Or you have the God who provides, Jehovah Jireh, right? So you have all these different names for God. On the other end of the spectrum, you have names that are given to God based on like who he is. So you have these names that are given to him based on his character or his nature. So on this side, over here you have things he's done. On this side, there are names given to him because he's a loving God or he's a patient God or he's a just God. So then there are all these names associated with those things. So you have character traits, his nature, who he is, and then you have things that he's done. And so it's really important if we're going to know God, the best, the best we can do to know God is to know as much about him as we can. And part of that is to know his names. And every time you bump into a name in the Bible, there's a story as to why that name is there. Every time. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. So you run across a name, which we'll look at next, next week, which is the God who sees. He's given this name for a reason. Uh, he's given this name because of a story. So every time you run into a name, there's a story uh, behind that name. So it's not just that I understand or have a relationship with God, the creator. Like if all I know of God is the name Elohim, which means he makes things, he created the universe. If that's all I know of him, that's fine. That's great. But it's a narrow relationship. It's like saying, this is my dad. That's all I know. Right? That's it. He's just a guy who takes me to school or paid my way for college, but that's it. Although those are names, so I just sort of defeated the illustration. Or this is my neighbor, and we all have these people in our lives. This is my neighbor, but that's all I know. They come in every day, they shut their door, close their garage, they never talk to us, whatever. That's our neighbor. Or this is my boss, and that's really all I want to know, right? So maybe it kind of works both ways, depending on how well you want to know uh, the people in your life. But if I only know God is the creator of the universe, that he makes things, the relationship is only based on those little facts, right? But the list of names in the Bible is this long set of identifiers of who God is and what he's done. And the more I learn about those, the broader the base of my relationship with him gets. And so it's real important for us as we're moving through, not just this series, but as we're moving through the Bible, when we come to a name, that we sort of stop and figure out, okay, why, why does he have this name? Why is this name given to God? I'm working on this idea for parents and children where you can teach the stories of God to your children based on just the names. And so you sit down with your child and you say, our name today is, you know, you, you say the name, and then there are all these Bible stories that maybe you can use as a curriculum to teach about God. So 
I think it's probably stronger if we learn his names, because with those names come all these stories. Now today, I'll keep you up to speed on that if you want that curriculum. Um, (laughs) We've set aside this series to teach through just some of the names of God. Again, there are hundreds and we can't, I guess we could do them all, but we've chosen five. Today will be the first of five. And the verse that has been our jumping off point, I'll put it on the screen for you, is the third of the Ten Commandments. And you might be familiar with this, but it says that you shall not misuse the name of the Lord. Now, the phrase that we're most familiar with comes from the Hebrew phrase, lashav. Let me hear you say the word lashav. Lashav. It means in vain, empty. It's hollowed out. It has no meaning. And so some versions say, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't take his name and handle it without meaning or without knowledge of who it is. Uh, This interpretation is better. Don't misuse it. Don't take what it is and fumble it. Don't drop it. Don't, you know, don't have a sort of negligence with his name. And so this has been our verse that we've been jumping off of. And I know that our narrow understanding of this verse or this command is that we don't take the name God and put it right next to profanity in the same sentence. And there's certainly some truth to that. That's, a, that's also a part of this. But that's a very narrow understanding of this command. This command is much broader. It's about my handling of his name. So when I'm speaking or praying or talking about him, even when I'm up here, it's very important that I don't misuse his name. Because if I misuse his name, then uh, whatever it is I've promised in his name, whatever it is that I've taken an oath for in his name, whatever it is that I'm saying to you about him using that name, if it's not true or if it's fumbled or if it's mishandled, then God begins to become associated with broken promises or broken statements or broken truths. And so the command is quite serious. Don't, don't do this. And it's definitely a command, as it says, don't do this sort of thing. But also in that command is this intimate invitation to know his name. Come in and know, God says, the most intimate part of me and of really of any person, their name. Because the name has a story and behind every name is a story. Now today, I want us to look at the most common name for God in the Bible. This is the one that's on the pages of the Bible nearly 7,000 times. No other name compares to this name in the Bible. So when you're reading through the scriptures, if you're watching for it, you will bump into this name for God nearly 7,000 times. It's a huge name. And yet, although it's the most common name for God in the Bible, it's also the most sacred name for God, which is very interesting. It's the most used, and yet it's the most sacred. What do I mean by the most sacred? Well, the priests wouldn't even say this name out loud. They would whisper it in the temple once a year. The scribes, when they would copy scripture, would get to this name for God 7,000 times. And they would get to this name and they would write it. And then they would throw the pen away. And they would take their clothes off and take a bath and then put new clothes on and then grab a new pen and begin to write it. Which meant the Psalms took forever to copy. Oh, there's the name, bath, pen, new clothes, boom. This, the name, bath, pen. It's just a lot of wasted water and ink and so forth. The, um, the name for the name, because most, there are even some Jews today, if you read their writings about God, they will be writing this sentence, or if you're writing in Hebrew, it starts over here. And they would get to this name for God and they would leave it blank. And then they would continue the sentence. 
It's the most sacred name. The name for the name was the name Hashem, which means the name. So this is a really cool thing. It's like, who is this God that you worship? Oh yeah, that's the name. It's so amazing, we just call it the name. Now in the Bible, it looks like this. First lot. Have you seen this before? These are the consonants, so to speak. I mean, this is, the, the vowel sounds were not added until later. Hebrew, ancient Hebrew had no vowels, and so you have these little dots and lines and things that they got added in later. But this is the name for God that's most used in the Bible. Now, I know that's not in your Bible. If it is, I'd love to hang out with you. But I know that it doesn't look like that, but it looks like this. Next slide. Has anyone seen this word before? Don't be confused. There are two versions of this word. This is in all caps. If you see Lord and then lowercase O-R-D, that's the word Adonai, which means master or Lord, right? This one is all caps. So when you run across the word Lord, it's in all caps. It's a version or a transliteration of the word above it. Now, the word above it, the pronunciation of that, which we'll get to in a little bit, no one really knows because it wasn't spoken. It was just that sacred. But there are some ideas on how it sounds and how it should sound and so on. And we'll get to that again in a moment because it's very, it's very interesting. Now, are you in Exodus 3? Are you there? Again, there are always stories for why God gets this name. But this one is interesting because God gives himself this name. And this is the most famous of all the stories that's using this name. And maybe you are quite familiar with this. And I would like us to look at it just for a little bit. Now, the backstory to this is, this is the story in the event in the life of Moses. Has anyone heard of Moses? Okay, good. We're all on the same page. Moses gets invited by God. He gets called by God to take part in, at that time and maybe in all of history, the greatest act of emancipation ever, and God says, I want you to go and free my people, the Israelites, from slavery who were in Egypt, and Moses knew this because he lived there, but God calls Moses to run point, to run lead, to be the guy, to be his hands and feet in this situation, to go to the Pharaoh and to ask him and to lead the way to free an entire nation of people from slavery and into freedom. Now, what happens in this story is pretty amazing, and we'll look at it kind of in reverse or all over the place, and we're going to get to a question that Moses asked God about this call, which is really the heart of our talk today. But before that, God is saying, look, Moses, I've seen the misery of my people. I've picked up on their suffering. I'm concerned about their suffering. I want it to end. He's like, I've given people enough time to do the right thing, but it's not going to happen. So I need to do something. I want you to do it. I want you to go to the house of Pharaoh because you have an inside track there, which we'll get to in a moment. I want you to make this happen. I will go ahead of you. I will help you. I will make sure that you succeed. But at the end of the day, I would like somebody with skin on them to do this. So this is Moses' call. Now, after all of that conversation, verse 11 really is the turn in the story. Verse 11, well, verse 10 is good here. God says, so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring the people, the Israelites, my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. There's the command, there's the thing, go. Moses said to God, verse 11, and let's just all say these three words together. Who am I, right? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? Why are you asking me to do this, and this, by the way, is the first of a series of near objections to God's call that Moses will give God. This is the first of several times where Moses will look at God and say, look, I'm not doubting that that needs to be done, but I think you got the wrong guy. 
This is what he'll do time and time and time again. And God is a patient God. Otherwise, it would have been because he just kept pushing back. So the first response from Moses to God is a question of doubt. Like, who am I? Like, you, you can pick up on this in his question. Like, who am I? I don't think that's me. Or maybe there's a self-doubt based on what he knows about himself. So there's kind of this self-awareness of who he is. So in some ways, it's not just, I don't know why you're picking me. It's also, I don't know why you would want to pick me. Who am I that I would go to Pharaoh and do this? Another part of that question is just simple avoidance. Like, look, I don't doubt that it needs to be done, but someone else should go and do that. A year before I started working here, I went to lunch with the guy who was the preacher here, and he said, I think I'm going to quit. I want to give you the keys. I want you to come here. And my answer to him was, no. I don't think somebody, I think somebody should do that, but I'm not doing it. And I said no for a year. So now you know where the message is going. But I just said no. I mean, I, I, I don't think that it shouldn't not be done. I think that definitely somebody's equipped for that, but it's not me. I love my job in the toy department down at a youth ministry. I don't really want to come here and do this. I talked to, uh, I actually was talking to him about two or three weeks ago, and he informed me that if you're unfamiliar with our church's story, we did start our church in a strip club, and I know I've talked about that before. It's now a strip club again, so, and uh, <laughs> it's just sort of a weird turn of events, but the, uh, that was kung fu. So there you go, um, which I don't know how, what do you want? But he told me the other day, he was like, I'm putting together a series of writings and articles based on the days leading up to our time in that place and then, you know, whatever. He's like, I, I really want to get some stories. And I said, I'll be your first. He said, okay, what is it? Which I wasn't working there. But I said, I remember coming up there while you guys were renovating and I would say to people out loud and in my own heart, I would never work at this church, Never. Here we are, all right? So Moses has this avoidance. Like, I know it needs to be done, but someone's a better choice. But there's also a sense of a lack of confidence, some kind of unworthiness in those words, like, who, who am I to do that, really, you know? And my question about his question of who am I is really this, like what makes a guy ask a question like that when he gets invited to join in something so great as this? What makes us ask that question of God, who am I, when we get asked to join into something so great as whatever it is that he is doing? And even on the practical level, like maybe some, a friend of yours has confided in you and said, look, I need some help with this and here's the, here's the heaviest thing I can give you that's going on in my life. And you're thinking in silence, why? Who am I that they even share this with me? right? Or at work, they say, we need you to do a new role. We need you to come out of this thing that you've been good at and comfortable with. We want you over here, and it's going to require this and that. And you're thinking, why? Who am I to do that, right? And we could go around this church and just pick up people who are serving and leading in different areas and saying, what was your first thought when we asked you to do this here? Many of them would say, I got the wrong guy. I don't even like babies. I don't even like people, <laughs> you know? To which we always answer, look, we need a warm body, and, uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the screening system's a little tougher than that. So the first response that Moses gives is some kind of doubt, maybe not just in himself, but does God know who he's talking to? And I think about this when people get asked 
about their relationship with Jesus, right? And some of you are in the room today that I'm sure that you fall into this category, but because uh, I was certainly in this category as well at some point in my life, but it's like, I understand that Jesus has called me to trust him and to give my life back over to him and to become a follower of his, to become a Christian. I know that's the call, but like, I don't, I don't understand why God would even want that from me at this point in my life because of, and you fill in the blanks, and you fill in the blanks of what that history may be or that even present may be. And so here's Moses. God asks him to do this thing. And in a moment's time, he thin slices the question of God and he thinks about his own self and he thinks about his own story and he thinks, this is, I'm not the right guy for this. And so he asks God, who am I? Well, the reason he asked that is there's always a story. If you will, let's look back together and we'll just walk through this as quickly as we can. Chapter 2 of Exodus. The entire, most of Moses' life in terms of years is in chapter 2. Now, his story continues for quite a while after chapter 3, and Moses himself wrote these words in chapter 2, and so he has chosen to highlight, depending on how you count them, six pieces of his life that he would consider major things. And so when you think, when you think okay, what is it, a, you know, what was Moses doing up to the point of chapter 3? Well, most of his life was happening in this one chapter of chapter 2. When we pick up with Moses in chapter 3, he's old. He's at the end of his life. So all of it is really taking place in chapter 2. So check it out. It's right, it's, you know, you can probably guess some of these in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. He's born. So he lists his birth, but there's a unique story to his birth, and it kind of happens in chapter 1 where uh, the Pharaoh says, all the baby boys that have been born to Hebrew parents need to be killed. Do you know this story? right? So this will happen again, by the way, when Jesus is born. It's very interesting. And so the Pharaoh says, all the baby boys, this age or whatever, need to be exterminated. Just get rid of them. Just kill them. And so the Egyptians would make sweeps by day to see where the babies were. So the mother of Moses made, and the history is great here, she made this tiny miniature ark, and she put Moses in this thing, and then she would place him in the marsh or the reeds at the bank of the river, while she would work so she could keep an eye on him. And the way that the thing was constructed, no one would hear him if he cried. Now, we, now as a kid, I thought she made the thing, she put him in the thing, and then she just kicked him downstream. Right? But actually, she made it, placed him, kept an eye on him. And then there's this great story, which is sort of the second part of Moses' story. One is he's born, but there's a unique situation there. One of Pharaoh's daughters finds the baby crying in the little tiny boat that she's made for him, and she picks him up, and she says, and you can find this in the text, she says, this is one of the Hebrew children, and she has this overwhelming compassion for this child, and so they have this exchange, and he's adopted into the house of Pharaoh, so Israelite child, Hebrew baby, born, placed in a river just to be safe, and mom could keep an eye on him, picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, no less, and then adopted into the royal family, so this is an altogether crazy situation. Now, verse 11. One day, and between verses 10 and 11, he grew up. So verses 11, verse 11 says, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. So you have this picture of Moses kind of on the other side of the fence. He knows his story, he knows who he is, and yet he's watching his own people suffer as slaves. Glancing, or then he says, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew 
one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian. So he's born, he's saved, he's adopted, he grows up in like a privileged situation. And then the next part of his story, and this is really where it turns for the worse, he's a murderer. So Moses, who's called by God, by the way, has murder in his history. And so he kills this Egyptian, and then he hides him in the sand. Verse 13, the next day, when he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting, he asked the one, of, the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses freaks out. Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have hit the internet. That's what he thought. This thing went viral quickly. And so in verses 13 through 15, we won't read them all, Moses runs. He gets out. He leaves. It's the one thing he knows to do. So he's born. He's saved. He's adopted. He eats everything he wants. He lives in this great situation. He overlooks the fence one day and he sees an Egyptian beating his own people. He wells up with compassion, but it goes too far. And in his anger, he sins and he murders an Egyptian. He hides him in the sand like you do. And then he sees two of his own people arguing the next day. And he's like, people, 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 why are you doing this? And the one looks at him and says, we know your story. You're going to kill me like you killed that guy. And Moses thinks, run. So he runs. And the next few verses, 16 through 22, part A, Moses is in exile. He's a refugee, right? But while he's there, there's a small bright light. He gets married. He meets this girl, verse 21. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, and we'll put this on the screen for you, this is still how Moses sees his life. I have become an alien in a foreign land. Or you might say a stranger in a strange land. So for Moses, he's looking back. You can sort of say it this way, like it had this amazing beginning, but it slowly moved toward chaos and confusion. And when God calls him in chapter 3, Moses is a man who has been living uh, on the run and in exile from his people, growing old with his memories of perhaps a better time, or at least a more understandable time. And he was a man who at this point in his life didn't even feel at home anymore. And so he says to himself, I have just become this person without a country. I'm a man without a home. I don't even have a place that I can call my own. I feel like a stranger in a strange land. Does that make sense? So the question is, how did I end up here, is what he's saying. And for Moses, life was essentially going in reverse. Everything was retrospect for him. He was alone with his memories of the past. They haunted him every day, mostly his sin. I murdered a guy. I can't believe I murdered a guy. And all he could do was remember his own failures, his own mistakes, his own sins. It was a bad place to be for sure. And when we pick up in chapter 3, Moses is not just in the last years of his life, but to him, it's a life that had started out so well, but it ended up in such a terrible place, in a place he'd never thought he would be. And can anyone relate to that? I think the older we get, the more that makes sense, right? When people come into this building for help, uh, for food, for money, for train cards, for rent, for utilities, for shelter, 
And they all have different stories, but the one story that's the same is, I never thought I'd be here. Because no one like, is going through high school and sitting in trigonometry going, man, my life's goal is that one day I want to knock on the doors of churches and ask for help. No one. No one does that. Now, some of the ones that come back day after day, we think, well, maybe that was their plan. But really, at the end of the day, nobody has that goal in mind that that's where they want to end up. And so they all sort of tell the same story. Like, this is not, this is not where I thought I would be. Or when I sit down with people who have taken drastic turns in their own lives, like they lost a job or they're separated from their families or their marriage is in trouble or there's distance even from God, most of them, if not all of them, are telling the same story. Like, this is not where, this really isn't where I thought we would be, right? When I moved here, it's, I didn't think that this would happen. It was a new and a better life for me. Or when you and I are broken, for whatever the reasons, there's a deep introspection that happens and most of us we often dream of things not possible like going back in time and changing the story and rewriting our own story and in my own life and I've kind of found this to be true in everybody's life is that when I'm at that point of brokenness I start to feel a little bit out there maybe useless and spiritually I feel a little distant from God is anybody in the boat with me on that it's just so common and so here's God telling Moses and chapter 20 it's almost like God knows a little psychology here of course he does but he's just saying he just throws the mission out as fast as he can and he says now go and then Moses may be savvier than God thought but wait a minute who am I I have a history it's not good and I'm old I'm working for my father-in-law right it's not a good story God I didn't know that was so funny but okay (laughs) That's fine. Uh, now, God answers, verse 12. This is awesome. God said, I will be with you, a common phrase all through the scriptures. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, suppose I go right? Like there's a little glimmer of like, kind of sounds like a cool job. But suppose I go, he says, to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers, not even a Pharaoh at this point, but his own people, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? Like a trick question. What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses in verse 14, it's so crystal clear, I love when God does this. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Oh, much clearer now, right? So what is he saying? And then in verse 15, God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, all caps, here we go, immediately translated for us the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, right? And the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I will be remembered from generation to generation. So this is incredible. Moses' question is, who am I? And God tries to avoid it a little bit and says, hey, I'm gonna be with you, it's no big deal, just go. God says, or Moses says to God, okay, suppose I do go. What's your name? I am. Okay, 
You tell them the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you, and that's the name forever. Now, uh, let me do a little illustration for you. On my typed notes, the next part of the sermon looks like this, because it's crazy complicated. But at the coffee shop this morning, God went, and I picked up the caribou napkin, and here it is now. All right. I love these napkins because they have the, it says list your favorite, circle one, roller coasters, songs, guilty pleasures, movie quotes. I circled movie quotes and put mine down here, just following the rules, you know. And, uh, and my movie quote is, Ferris, he never drives it, he just rubs it with a diaper. From Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So I was just following the rules. But on, the, on this napkin is really what I want to teach you this morning. Now, here's the name that God gives. He says, I am, and then the next word is the Lord. Now, Sylvie, bring up how it's pronounced. This is so interesting. The name, this is a combination of the letters that are used in that word. Now, I'm going to have you say it with me. It sounds like this. I'll say it first. It says, yot he va Hey, say it with me. Yot, hey, va, hey. But again, the priests, they would only whisper it once a year. Yot, hey, va, hey. That's what they would do. Sounds like breathing, doesn't it? And that is a symbolic understanding of what the name means. It means God is the giver of breath, of life. There's a piece of this name that has to do with all that is. Existence, life. Once a year. We don't even say it. It's the name, Hashem. And there are two major understandings of this name. And I'll give them to you straight away, and then I'll explain them. One is that the name is telling us that God is a self-existent God. Now, this is seen in the burning bush story. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. There's Jethro, one of the greatest names in Scripture, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, or Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within the bush. Do you know this part of the story? Moses saw that the bush was on fire. Though it was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses is tending sheep in a desert that he knows quite well, and there's a bush that's caught on fire, which may not have been that difficult of an occurrence in the desert. However, it's not burning up. And so, like you do in verse 3, so Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. So there's this piece of his name, or God is already in the story explaining to Moses that this is, this is a miracle. It's one of these miracles. And about the burning bush, it's strange to Moses because nothing appeared to start it, at least that he could see, and it wasn't burning down. So it had this appearance to exist without any help other than itself. It was self-sustaining, self-existing. And so part of the name of God, I am Yahweh, is known to be connected to that. God is the self-existent, doesn't need anybody else kind of God. And if he's the author of life, the giver of life, the maker of all things then he doesn't need anyone outside of himself to make himself. 
So when your kids come up to you and say, got a question, I'm seven, I'm thinking about these things, who made God? It's a deep, profound question. The answer is, of course, well, whoever that was is God. Whoever makes God wins. So we have this bush that's on fire, but it's not burning up, that's not consuming itself, and it appeared to have no beginning, and it has no end, and so here we have this self-existence in the bush. And so one of the things that God is communicating straight away to Moses is, I don't need anybody's help but my own. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, right? And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. The word for holy is the word kadosh. It means it's set apart, it's special. This is a divine thing. God has taken this physical space and it's been turned into something amazing. But what's interesting is that he asks Moses to take his sandals off, put skin on this holy ground. Now in the days of when all the gods had no contact with humans, here's God saying, I want your skin on this space. This is intimate. I'm inviting you in, right? And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So in the beginning of the story, God comes to Moses in this miraculous thing, this bush that's on fire, but it's not burning up. And so some of the understanding of this name, or one big piece of it, is that God is self-existent. I am. The word I am, by the way, bring it back up on the screen for me, uh, Sylvie. The combination of these words simply means to be or be. God's name is be. It's just the self-existent verb, Right? Another example of this is simply that God is fully present. He's committed. He says this two times in the story. He says, I'm the God of these people, of all these different generations. Turn the, the page, if you have to turn page in your Bible. Sorry, I just assume that it's just like mine. Uh, in verse 15, God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from what? Generation to generation. There isn't a generation in which the name of God and the presence of God isn't present. And so part of this enlisting those names, those big famous names of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on, has to do with covenant or commitment. God has made a pact with these people. And God has committed to be there, to be ever present, the God of your forefathers, but I will also be known as the same God all through the generations. So you have this self-existence piece, but you also have this presence, this commitment piece, right? So verse 15 in our story about, say this to them, the Lord of all these people and every generation to come, it's a reminder that no generation has lived without God's presence. Now I know in 1966, Time Magazine had the famous question uh, or the famous statement, God is what? Dead. So at a moment in our history, probably having to do with all these things going on at the world at that time, the world stands up, or at least one man stands up and says, I think God has removed himself from our story. He's dead. But this is a reminder that no matter what the story is, and sometimes we isolate ourselves from the presence and visions of, vision of God, he hasn't gone anywhere. He's always here. He's always committed, always present. And sometimes I act like God has not seen this or that before, or that I am somehow a different story or a different case than the rest. And when I ask the question, as Moses did in verse 11, who am I that you've asked me to go and do this? 
It's not just a self-deprecating sort of self-doubt, self-awareness you know, uh, of my lack of talent or whatever. It's also an arrogant question assuming that God must be off of his game at this point in time. And so God comes to Moses and says, I need you to go and do this. And Moses' question is, well, who am I to do that? Turn to 2 Corinthians 12. This is Paul, an apostle, which means, among many things, that he was handpicked by Jesus to do whatever it is that he asked him to do. And in Paul's case, Paul took the story of Jesus to all these cities who were non Jewish. He put the gospel on the global scale. Right? So this is the same Paul. This is the one we're talking about. And Paul, as an apostle, had been gifted with things that you and I aren't gifted to do. And in verses 1 through 6, he just says some really strange things about these visions he's had. And along with that backstory, there's some other things in Paul's life that, for one reason or another, he does not feel as though he's worthy or complete to do the task. So in verse 7, he gives us this incredible, this is very heavy, very, very heavy. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, verses 1 through 6, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Have you heard this phrase before? A messenger of Satan to torment me. So Paul says, there's something about my life, A, that I hate, but there's something about my life that is keeping me humble. And you fill in the blanks as to what that is for you, right? Next part, verse 8, three times. Paul was great at keeping score. Three times. I pleaded with the Lord. So he's on his knees. He's begging to take it away from me. So you have this picture of Paul on his knees praying to God saying, everything is awesome but this one thing. You got to take this one thing away, right? Have you done this before? We go to God and we say, if you just take away this worry or this anxiety or this pressure or this materialism or if you just take away this stress in my family, if you just take away this job or give me a job, if you just take away whatever the list is, we do that. I don't feel like I'm complete unless this one thing is gone. And then he says in verse 9, but he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. It's always like God to go, ha ha, but you don't catch the story. It's not about what you can do, it's about what I can do through you, and you think you can never do anything. My grace is sufficient for whatever it is that he was praying for, and no one knows. We've had debates since the day we read it. And Paul has left it a mystery, and it doesn't seem to matter because whatever it is, God says to him, hey, what's more important is that I have the power to make perfect what you feel to be imperfect. In your weaknesses, I'm strong. Therefore, he says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. So you picture Paul in small group in the first century, and people are going around going, man, I struggle with this, I struggle with that, and Paul goes, me too, and here's my list. And I prayed three times for this thing to go away. But I'm gonna boast about it so that Christ's power, he says, may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, and then here's the main downbeat, for when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then 
I am strong. Three times he goes to God and says, take it away. I don't feel complete. I would feel better without it. I would feel more in line with you if you took this away. And God says, I don't need to take it away. Because my power is made strong in your weakness. It's almost as though, and Paul will say this later to the Galatians. And I'll put it on the screen for you. My grace is sufficient for you, he says to them. My grace is, bring that up, Sylvie. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. By grace you have been saved, he says, through faith. And this is not of yourselves. This is a gift of God, not by works so that no man can boast. So it's this statement about what God does for me, he can only do for me, so that I can never walk around and go, look what I did for myself. So the fact that Christ loved me, that he came here, that he died on the cross for me, and that I walked into that relationship with him, that is not based on anything I have done. That is based on me understanding and living by the truth of who he is. And so when Moses says in verse 11, great idea, God, who am I that I should go and do that? God's answer is, it actually doesn't really matter who you are. It matters who I am. And I've said this before and I'll say it again, that resurrection does not begin with life but with death. So coming to God empty is the best place to be because that's where life begins. That's where we rise. And so when Moses shuffles his feet a bit at God's calling on his life, God answers back with the name Yahweh. I am. I got it. I made everything that is. I'm always present. I'm committed to you. Who am I, Moses? I am. And ultimately, again, it doesn't really matter who you are. It matters who I am. Now, let me close with uh, a story and a confession and then a statement for you. Uh, been here three years. I think, you know, I did the math on the iPhone calculator. Uh, 156 Sundays or something. And... Uh, you know, 18 months of that, just so you know, maybe you weren't around then, but 18 months of that, I was terrified to get up here. It would take me weeks to write these things because I was so, they still do, but it just, it was really your fault. You just freaked me out, right? <laughs> I, I spent most of my career standing on stage in front of teenagers and it just was more comfortable for me. And, um, and I loved, I love this. And it was my, one of my favorite things about this role in this place, but one of the reasons that I said to the guy who asked me about coming here, saying, no, I don't think so, this was part of it, because I just was so terrified, because I don't want to get it wrong, and I don't want to misuse his name, so to speak, and I don't want to make anybody mad, like we all do, right? And I don't want to, like, do something drastic. I don't want to ruin it, you know? As a youth guy, and I'm just sharing with you inside biz stuff from pastors, but as a youth guy, you're never concerned about, I mean, you might be concerned like around the water cooler when you're bad-mouthing like the suits that work in the big part of the ministry, but you're never really concerned about stuff. Your only concern is, you know, I mean, you have a lot of concerns, but your only main concern is that Wednesday night goes well and the kids have a good time and we have a good retreat and we blah, blah, blah. But you're never like sitting around like with just the weight of the whole thing, you know? And, uh, and it's not that I didn't know that then. I knew it. That's why I stayed in it. I was like, man, this is a great place to be right? And so part of my coming here was just in terror of this. And I don't remember when the moment was. I know some people can remember these God moments, like they have the date and the time and the way the sun was, but I don't remember 
when the moment was, and I think it was more just like an awakening. And I'm still awakening to this, but it's just like, I just got to the point where I was like, it just doesn't matter. You know? God didn't call me here because of anything that I could do. Right? I mean, there's some skills there. You don't want just like someone who has no skill set. But at the end of the day, it was probably more him looking at me going, yeah, I can work with that. Instead of, man, if we don't get this guy in this place at this time, it's never going to happen. And that's the way he sees us. It's like, I can work with that. I can do great things with that, actually. Which, is a, which to the world, they look in and go, wow, how did that happen? God, right? It's not by me, anything I've done. It's what God's doing through me. And I think at the call, and I'll close with this, and if you've come to write anything down, this is going to be it, and I'll warn you before I say it. At the call to become a Christian, like to become a follower of Jesus, many people, and maybe you're one of these, say in some form, who am I for that? Right? Because of, like in Moses' case, some kind of history of just this constant downgrading of myself and who I am and who I am currently, right? And many people just stop at this incredible saving relationship with Jesus because of that question. I don't, I don't know why you would want me to do that, God. Who am I for that? And so this is what I want to say. Becoming a Christian, a follower of Jesus, is less about answering the question, who am I? And more about trusting in the answer to the question, who is God? And the moment I get those in the right order, salvation, this relationship with God, is based solely on him and not on me. Now he'll take me and make me who I am. He'll take me and shape me and change me and transform me. But following Jesus begins not by answering so much who am I, but who is God. Does that make sense? And so when Moses gets called to do this incredible thing by God, his question is wrong. Who am I? And there's a loophole for God when Moses says, well, fine, then what is your name? And God says, I am. I can do it. I'll do it through you, right? So I'm going to leave it at that because I could keep talking, but I'm going to leave it at that. And as we move into communion, which we do every week, which has a risk in becoming familiar, but it's, it, it is why we're here, to circle around these tables and to remember that it isn't by anything that we do or have done or will do as to why God came, why he loves us, why he died for us. And this bread and this juice is a reminder that God sent his son and he lived and he died and he has promised to come again. And in the meantime, we improvise through life, trusting him that he can meet all of our needs and that he is who he said he is. That he's always been around, he always will be around and he's committed to us. And this is a physical reminder of that. It's also the time of our offering which we give back and so if you've come to do that, that happens in a moment as well. I'm going to pray. And uh, if you would like prayer today, I'll be over here uh, as we do about every week. And I would love to pray with you uh, about whatever. So let's pray together. Father.
Thank you for um, just the great gift of grace. And when you call us to do something, it isn't based on like a great record, right? But, it's, but you base it on an incredible grace and you see things in us that we just don't see. And ultimately, God, when you call us into a relationship with you, again, you're not, you're not seeing me as someone who's had it together up to this point, and therefore I'm worthy. So we just sit in awe of that, that, that by your name, you save, you provide, you, you lead us, you shower grace down on us. So God, help us to identify with your people, with Moses, with this situation of my life has ended up where I'd never wanted it to be, and yet there you are saying, now we can get started with some great things. It's never too late, that it's never out of the question that you will use us. And Father, for those who are outside of a relationship with you, they're just disconnected from you. Father, I pray that this is the beginning of a journey back to you or into your arms once again. As we take this bread and this juice, remind us of your great love for us. That it's not by anything we've done, but it's by your gift of your son in our place for the sins of the world and the new creation of a new heaven and a new earth. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.